Welcome back. And our first question is, as a human being, I like verbal and physical contact. Why doesn't God give us that? Is it wrong to long for his touch? So uh, it's a great question, and several things pop through my mind at the same time. God's original design, he came to talk to them face-to-face in the cool of the garden every day, and they had physical contact and face-to-face verbal contact. When people are restored to intimacy with God such that he can, there are occasions when we find in Scripture, he, uh, he says to Miriam and Aaron that uh, to uh, prophets that he speaks in riddles and dreams and dark speech, but to Moses I speak face-to-face as a man speaks to a friend, and God would Moses would go into the sanctuary and God would come down and speak to him face-to-face. So, And then Jesus himself came in person, and God dwelt among us in flesh and veiled his life-giving glory so that we could touch him. And he said to Thomas, touch my side and after his resurrection uh, and stop doubting and believe. And, and so we could speak to him and, and, and touch him f- for those who were on earth at that time. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And so we are to be his representatives, and we are to carry forward the word of God and speak to people in the way Jesus would. And eventually, when Christ returns, we will see him face to face again. Um, But right now, why don't we literally see him physically face to face? It's because we are not prepared for that. And that's what it says in John, that uh, when he returns, we will see him face to face, for we shall be like him. And so God Uh, continues to veil his presence from us because we would not be able to tolerate that full unveiled glory yet, but he's preparing us to do that. Next question is, why did Jesus wait 4,000 years to appear if knowing him and believing in him is crucial to our salvation? It seems he could have been uh, Eve's firstborn son. And, of course, uh, I, I think Eve was expecting that, but that's not the case. And and this question really uh, lends itself to asking the question, what do we understand the sin problem to be, and what do we understand the solution for it to be? If the sin problem was something something legal, they broke a rule and somebody had to pay a penalty, then the first baby born could have been a baby to pay the penalty. And you could have seen that same thing when Jesus was born when he was, and Herod tried to have the baby Jesus slain. We have a sinless baby Jesus on earth. If it was simply a matter of slaying a sinless baby to pay the price, which is what pagan religions teach, uh, human blood sacrifice, if that was it, then why did God protect baby Jesus? He's here to give his life, let him be slain as a baby, stop the suffering, uh, and have the payment made, and we can all be saved. Because that is not the problem of sin. The problem of sin was a breach of trust, and the breach of trust was based on falsehoods about God that were told by the liar— Uh, which Adam and Eve believed, and those falsehoods had to be resolved. And after they fell, there were new layers of misunderstanding and distortion that were told that needed clearing up. One of those layers that if you eat of the tree, you will die, that needed clearing up. What 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 does death mean? What kind of death? Who brings the death? Is it punishment for sin? Somebody has to show that and demonstrate that. Additionally, Um, And so this is the whole Testament narrative. The whole Testament narrative are the two antagonistic principles playing out in human history, and God is revealing the truth about who he is to destroy the lies, to win us back to trust. And why wait till the time that Jesus came? I think it was integral to one of the truths that had to be revealed. It was the time when when the Bible says, when the time reached its fulfillment, then Christ came. And what was what was it about that time, according to Scripture, which is the first time in human history 
that was available on planet Earth when Jesus came, that he didn't come before. And it was part of the lesson that needed to be revealed. And one of the things that we highlight in this class is the difference between God's design law and Satan's imposed law imperial rule system. And what we have, and the angels didn't fully understand design law versus authoritarian rule. They didn't fully understand it. They didn't understand the difference between external behavior and internal motivation. That's how they were deceived by Lucifer. They were tricked. They couldn't read the heart. And so what do we find? When Jesus finally came, first time in human history, a group of people on the outside seemed to be following the rule book. If you look at Israel's history, they were in and out of paganism and rebellion over and over again. They had to go into captivity. They come out of captivity. And finally, after all that, they stop going to idol worship. They start keeping the rule book. They have the Sabbath they keep. They do the feast days like they're supposed to. They are tithe payers, even on the herbs in their garden. They are keeping the rules. On the outside, they're finally doing what it appears God has told them to do. And what was the lesson when Jesus came to that group of people who seemed to be following the rules? That if you follow the rules for the wrong reason, you end up an enemy of God and you'll kill him. And that's why I think he waited till that time in human history to come, because it's the first time he had a group of people who were actually following the rules, but they were still doing it for the wrong reason. Concerning the time of trouble, uh, Adventists seem preoccupied with uh, persecution over peace and, and protection offered. Uh, how do Daniel's statements and Jesus' statement uh, co complement rather than contradict each other? I'm assuming you will ask what law lens you look through and so forth and so on. Um, I actually would need you to um, cite the portions or reference the portions of Daniel and the portions of Jesus that you're wanting to have contrasted. I, I, I really don't know. So uh, please reflect on what it is specifically you're liking. Uh, you say, how, how do they, and, and, and we can comment on it at a different time. Would you give some insights on knowing right from wrong and judging? So I would encourage you to go to our website and on our website under the um, resource section, uh, go to our um, From Friends, from Fear to Friendship, um, Growing Up in God, our Seven Levels of Moral Decision-Making talk, which is the first talk, and it actually is all about how do you tell right from wrong? There's seven levels of moral decision-making. Or you can get the God-Shaped Heart book, and it goes into great detail on how do you tell right from wrong. And uh, I have an entire seminar on that, and I'll tell you, encourage you to watch that whole seminar. And you can stream that online, and uh, then if you still have questions, let us know. I haven't asked to join the worship team of at my church. I'm wrestling with some of the songs they sing, uh, songs about being ransomed through the blood and the blood being applied, washing us white. Since most Christians hold the penal legal view, would I be misrepresenting God by, uh, by leading the congregation in songs like these, or would uh, this be an opportunity being in the leadership role to show God's true character? maybe getting opportunity to share what the atonement actually means. So I, for me, it has to really do with what you believe. The or, first, first order question, the organization that wants you to sing and be part of the worship team, do you believe that organization 
as an organization is heading in the right direction? Are they seeking with righteous hearts to advance? Remember, none of us know it all. We all have things to be corrected on. But is their orientation one that they love God and they're seeking to advance his kingdom? Or, for instance, a very simple example, if instead of a church inviting you to be part of their worship team, this was a Satan cult center asking you to be part of their worship team, you would say no, because that whole organization is moving the wrong direction. So first order question, do you believe the organization is moving in the right direction? And if so, then songs like this are part of the process we're all working out. And I wouldn't make too big a deal over the songs, but I would use those as opportunities to bring up discussion. Hey, we just had a song about the ransom being paid or the atonement. What does that actually mean? And maybe bring that up into a class discussion afterwards uh, to, to trigger concepts and what those songs actually mean. And I think it's a great opportunity to witness. Some people are attached to various ways to a lock of hair or a lost loved one, a splinter from the cross of Christ, clothes or bones from esteemed, revered dead people. Even the to the extent that some of these, uh, some kind of special, some of these have some kind of special power. I feel the law of worship is involved somehow, or emotions uh, could overrule reasoning. But how would you explain the reality of this topic? How? Uh, see, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but as you hear that, probably many of you don't really think that's ever been a problem for you, has it? No. You know, the, what, what are called relics in the Catholic Church, a, a little piece of bone or, a, or a, a piece of cloth that was over somebody's tomb. or, or uh, the, we, we, You probably haven't felt like you've been caught up in any of that, have you? No. no. No, no. Uh, but it's because, because in the Adventist church, we don't do that. We, we, we get caught up in the same, same problem, applying magical or mystical powers to stuff when we do it to concepts. And how many of you seen, sang the song, There's Power in the Blood? How many have heard sermons about uh, being washed in the blood and cleansed by the blood and power in the blood and happy for the blood? Is is there actually power in the blood? No power in Christ. Or is the power in the one who shed his blood? Right. Yes. And the blood is a symbol of something else. And if we don't recognize the symbol, and Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. In John 6, he wasn't talking cannibalism. He was talking symbolism. And if we don't understand the symbols, then we can end up ascribing magical meaning. And I know many good Christians that go, I'm saved by the blood. I've claimed the blood. I'm, I'm under the blood. Mm-hmm. And many of them are actually thinking literal blood, the blood of Jesus. That's hematolatry. <laughs> and so this question is the same type of thing. It's people looking for uh, uh, substituting symbols that might have some benefit to remind us. Symbols can remind. Jesus gave us symbols of the bread and the wine to remember him by, and we've made a ceremony out of it. I'm not sure the New Testament at the Last Supper, Jesus is making a ceremony. That was actually a meal. Yes, it was part of the Passover, but it was an actual meal they were having. And I'm not convinced that Jesus was saying set up a ceremony. I'm, I'm often persuaded to think he was saying, every time you break bread and drink wine together, remember me. We do that when we say grace and ask a blessing on the food. I'm thinking he's saying, remember, I came and died for you. 
uh, salvation is found in me. All your blessings come from me. I don't think he was actually setting up a ceremony. How many people in the Adventist church ascribe something mystical or magical to the little unleavened wafers and the little little shot shot of grape juice? I don't know. I, I mean, I was raised in the church to feel that way because only only people who are baptized could partake. Kids couldn't partake of it, and and you had to actually burn it afterwards. If it wasn't used, you had to go burn it. You couldn't give that wafer to the homeless to feed them. Why? It's magic. <laughs> because it, because that 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 something changed in the nutritional substance of some kind. It's magic now. And so I think uh, that this is a human thing. I think many people do it. I think that God calls us, and he uses symbols all across, all through history. He uses them, and they can be used beneficially. They can also be used superstitiously to confuse and to obstruct truth. So I don't have a hard issue one way or the other. I, I, I call people to, to look past metaphors and symbols. They can still be beneficial if they're used, and it really causes us to understand the meaning and enlighten us to the reality to which they point. So that, that's how I would approach that. So good morning, Dr. Jennings. I'm learning of the bottom-up processing and somatic experience in my traumatology doctorate at Liberty. I welcome your thoughts on how to encourage my counseling clients to connect with the with and experience emotions using the body. So I would like to know more about um, you know what methods you're being taught in. It, the, the, we are embodied beings. Our bodies, in fact, are, affect our minds, and our minds affect our bodies. And so when we experience something in our body, it can be a signal to alert us and point us that something is wrong. Conversely, something can originate in the body that can undermine our well-being. I'll give you a simple example. A person can have gastric ulcers. Those gastric ulcers could come from H. pylori, which is an infection, but those gastric ulcers could cause pain, cause called dyspepsia, could cause sleep disturbance. The pain and sleep disturbance can cause amygdala activation, could cause anxiety and worry, could cause sleep disturbance, could lead to depression and anxiety, all coming out of the body. Conversely, a person may have trauma issues, may have sleep disturbance, may have lots of anxiety, and they activate their vagal nerve, and that causes uh, increased acid production, and they develop um, ulcers in their stomach, and their stomach and their pain is telling them something's wrong from unresolved trauma issues. And so for me, uh, and, and or could have both. A person with trauma issues could also have H. pylori infection in their stomach. And so for me, um, you know, I would want to uh, understand what, what is being taught about the symptoms we're having in our body and how we trace them back. And for me, I always want to trace them back to their actual cause and to use that information in a way that brings person back into harmony with God's design principles, both, uh, both um, body, soul, and spirit, uh, so that they can actually experience the totality of wellness. Who are the eight religions represented by the eight heads in Revelation 17 beast? And who are the ten kingdoms represented by the ten horns? So I believe there's seven heads um, uh, and rather than eight. But if you'd like to know, get our Revelation magazine. You can read that online, uh, Unmasking the Beast of Revelation. Uh, you can read the flick book. You can download it. Uh, or you can have one sent to a U.S. postal address. And I describe all of the horns, heads, and all of that in great detail. Jesus was born sinless and became perfect. When did Jesus become perfect? At the cross. So, and I'm, I'm glad you're making this distinction. Yes, he was born sinless and he was always sinless, but it says in Hebrews um, 
5, uh, 10, that once he became perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. It says in the Gospels that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor in God and let man. He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And so as a human being, he grew and mature in his understanding and faced temptation. With each temptation, he says no to the temptation, solidifies in his character a perfect, sinless, uh, godlike human character, and thus his ultimate perfection was sealed at the cross when he refused to use his power to act in self-interest. And so that's when he was, and this is when he said, it is finished. My work is finished in restoring into humanity the perfection of God's character that was uh, damaged by Adam's sin. So I would agree at the cross. I've heard that Adventists believe that Michael is the archangel. Uh, Michael the archangel is Jesus. Does scripture point to that? My evangelical friend does not believe that because she says angels are, are created beings, and of course Jesus is not created. So these are two separate questions about, so yes, agree, angels are created beings, and immediately agree that Jesus is not a created being. And so, and then ask the, the friend, so when Jesus became human, does that, did he become a real human or not a human? What well, became a real human? Does that mean he's no longer God because he's now human? Okay, so right there in the life of Jesus himself, him becoming human does not negate the fact that he was God. Okay, so this idea, uh, if he presented himself in the form of an angel, that does not negate him still being fully God. So we want to affirm that Jesus is fully God with life, original, unborrowed, underived, preexistent. Uh, and you can make the case all through Scripture, Jesus, fully God, not a second-class God or a demigod. The question then is, is, is the um, person of Michael uh, uh, described as the archangel? An archangel uh, does not necessarily have to mean the um, species of angel, archangel can mean the position of angel, and that is a, a leader of the angels, and Michael is the leader of angels, and the mi word Michael means who is like God or one who is like God, and who is like God or who came to reveal God, that's Jesus. Uh, but you can then make this case from Scripture. If you go to um, Exodus chapter 3, when Jesus, excuse me, when Moses is speaking to God at the bush, and, and go and, and check it out, and you'll find the same thing, I think it's in Acts 7, where Stephen quotes this. So Old New Testament both make the case that at the burning bush, it says, I am the God of your uh, father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God spoke to him from the bush, and it says the angel of the Lord spoke to him from the bush. So God is described there as an angel, the angel of the Lord, okay? So you have fully God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is described as an angel, the angel of the Lord, right there. Now, the question is that that doesn't make the case that that's Michael. So how do we make the case that that's Michael? A couple of places. I won't go into all of them. There's multiple ones. I think the, the best ones are when Jesus himself said that um, that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come and, and, and rise again. So Jesus said that his voice, he controls the, the keys of death in the grave, and in his voice, the dead shall rise again. And then in um, Thessalonians, Paul says that at the second coming, uh, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ rise first. And so there we have the archangel. And then that archangel is described as Michael, the one who is like God. So I think we can make that case. But we have to always make sure we don't get confused with the Jehovah's Witnesses who make the case that Michael is Jesus and, and Michael is an angel or a demigod and not fully God. We, we completely reject that view. We believe that Jesus is preexistent with life original, unborrowed, under eye, fully God, fully the substance of God, but prior to his incarnation as a human. 
uh, he wanted to manifest himself in the form of his creation. Why? Because God is a go- uh, God of love and relationships. So it's the closest intimacy possible with its creation. And it says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in unapproachable light. He's an infinite being. Finite beings can't enter into infinity. So if God wants close intimacy with his creation and we can't enter infinity, then remember that Godhead leaves infinity and interacts on the close connection with us. And that member of the Godhead has always been Jesus, the bridge builder, the go-between. And so the, the case would be made that prior to the incarnation of Christ, Jesus was still the, the member of the Godhead interacting with his creations in heaven, his created beings in heaven. And he did that by manifesting but not becoming manifesting in the form of an angel, and that would be Michael the Archangel. Was God addressing the world law model versus his law, which reality is built upon, when he addressed Cain and Abel, seems the reasoning of the church has been hijacked. So certainly, um, God is addressing that you can't fix your own health, spiritual health problem, you have a terminal condition, only by recognizing that my son, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head, is going to come and overcome where you couldn't. That's Abel's offering. Will you be able to be healed from your sin condition and have eternal life? Whereas Cain says, no, I can do it myself through my hard work. I can heal myself. Uh, I, I can um, you know, I'll bring offerings and pay my way, which is the earth system. So yeah, certainly one can make that case. Uh, there's another question here. I really don't follow it, understand it, so I'm not going to read it. Um, I, I, I'd be happy to answer it, but I don't really, really understand what's asked there. So if you submitted that, just try to send it later in a different way. Could you explain how the prodigal son was found? So the prodigal son was left in his extremity by the father. It says he was in the pig slop eating the pig food, and he came to a census and decided to be better off back as a servant in his dad's place. And once he made that decision and started heading home, the father who had been every day looking for his son to come home, the eye was out, will my son come today, will my son come today? The father ran off and met him, but he didn't go to get him as long as the son was not interested in returning. And so I think that's a very beautiful um, description of how God is longing for us to return home, but if we're in rebellion against him, uh, he can't aid us in our self-destruction, so he leaves us to reap the consequences until we come to our senses and turn to him, and then he meets us there and and restores us to wellness. This question is from my 10-year-old daughter. When someone is going so wrong, it is hard to talk to God. When you are so mad, how can we get a better relation with God at the worst moments? So a couple of things. One, if you read the Psalms, you will find that um, David many times was quite agitated and upset, and he would go to God, and he actually prayed for God to to kill his enemies and to take wrath out on them. But then David uh, would then continue to pray and say, but God, uh, search me and see if there's a wicked way in me, and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit with me, in me. The idea being, and think about your human relationships. Mom, your 10-year-old is ever mad at you. What do you want from your 10-year-old? Do you want your 10-year-old to put a smile on their face and pretend that they really are happy when inside they're seething and hate you? Or do you want them to come to you and talk to you about it and say, I'm really mad and here's why? And well, that's what you want because then you can work it out. Same thing with God. If you're really mad and you're upset, go to him and tell him why. And then, and then be willing to listen to where he's leading because he will always lead you to a solution that will, will ultimately be for your best good. So that's what I would encourage you to do. It, it seems that uh, to go through life, everyone is being entrapped or coerced to be a coercion enabler. 
is the only sacred privacy left to beings likely to be one's relation with God? No. Um, we will have the worldly beastly system rising to coerce. It's very clear. The Bible makes it clear. No one can buy or sell, save him who has the mark of the beast. But, as we just read in the parable of Jesus, at the time of the second coming, um, he will separate based on the sheep and the goats. And so, while we have that decision in governance of ourselves, we make that decision in how we treat others. And so, we will find and we will create in our relationships the types of um, relationships that continue to operate. And this is where the, the body of Christ, as we come closer and closer to, to the end of time, that shaking happens and those who are like Christ become unified in one body. And we, uh, we support and encourage each other. So I think we will find in relationships with the people who love God that they will also practice these same principles as well as we practice these principles, while the world around us will not. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing you all in person next week. Bye. 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 Bye.